Uh, the subject is going to be that of, of Christian forgiveness. And in order to study Christian forgiveness, we're going to look at this parable, a parable that Jesus told, uh, called the parable of the unforgiving servant. My youth group meetings at, uh, at, at church, we've been going through the parables all year. Uh, and I've emphasized in several places, anywhere where you look in the scriptures, the context of your passage is important. Uh, you can't just nitpick and or nitpick. You can't just pull out verses here and there and, and then use them to twist their meaning. But if there's ever a place where the context is is equally or even more important, it would be in the parables, uh, because the parables are told primarily in many cases as illustrations to answer questions or to deal with some sort of situation that's going on. That's what we have here uh, in this parable. Uh, This parable is an illustration by Jesus to answer the question that is raised by Peter, namely, how many times should I forgive my brother? So that's the immediate context, and that's the context we'll read. We won't read the broader context, but I think even that is is important. This text is sandwiched between uh, two passages that deal with Uh, First, church discipline, and then behind the parable, we have a teaching about uh, divorce uh, and remarriage. And so both of those issues before and after this parable are issues that involve forgiveness. So let's begin by reading uh, Matthew 18. We'll read verses 21 through 35. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him as many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. But he refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all of his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. So as we as we look at the this topic of Christian forgiveness, I have two major headings, if you want to call them that. Uh, we'll start by looking at the basis for Christian forgiveness, and then secondly, the the substance of Christian forgiveness. And, and another way of saying that is just you know what what's the reason why should we be forgiving people? Is there some sort of reason why? And then what should that forgiveness look like? And of course, as we study what the forgiveness of God and what Christ, what Christian forgiveness looks like, we're also going to see then what it doesn't look like. 
But let's start with what is the basis of Christian forgiveness. Again, this parable is meant to be an illustration in answer to Peter's question. Or an illustration after Jesus has answered the question to further answer the question or provide a little bit more meaning. We'll we'll deal with Peter's question, some of its implications uh, in a little bit when we look at the substance of Christian forgiveness. But for now... Let's look at that basis. What's the reason that we are to be forgiving people? Uh, And so let's just first turn to the the parable itself. So the story begins. We have a king who is settling his accounts. uh, And so he has servants that are coming to him to pay him what they owe. He's going through his books and he encounters a man who owes him 10,000 talents. So the first question is, what is a talent? Um, The talent is an extraordinary amount of money, but what exactly is it? Well, essentially, a talent was the highest monetary unit of the day. It wasn't a coin. It wasn't a bill that you could have, uh, but it represented a, you know, a a collection of money. Uh, It's a monetary unit that's equal to about 6,000 drachmas. I'm sure that makes it incredibly clear for everybody what we're dealing with. That's meaningless as well. All right, so if we look at... The normal daily wages of a just a laborer, a common day laborer. We know this from another parable that Jesus told and other sources. Your typical servant day laborer would get a denarii a day you know, or one denarius, I guess, is the singular there a day. And so if I use that, then a talent would be the equivalent of about 20 days or 20 years, excuse me, labor for a regular laborer. A long time. Uh, if we put that in modern terms, if you make $15 an hour and you work 2,000 hours a year, which is roughly 50 weeks, then you make $30,000 a year. Okay? Using those numbers, a talent would be $600,000. You make $30,000 a year, a talent $600,000. But we're not dealing with one talent. We're dealing with 10,000 talents. Okay, so as we start to do the math in our heads... And then we stop because we can no longer do that math in our heads. The point is not the number. The point is that this was a massive debt. This was a debt that could not possibly be paid. So you can say it's an unpayable, uh, an unpayable debt. This servant could have taken a hundred lifetimes. He could have put his wife and his children to work. Uh, he could have worked four jobs and he would have never even come close to paying off this debt. And so the servant does the only thing that he possibly can do, and that's he throws himself on the mercy of the king, and he asks for patience from the king. Now, I I do find it interesting in verse 26, he said, so he fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. Apparently, this servant had not gone through the math that I just went through. You know, he didn't realize even the, the nature of his debt. He didn't realize the extent of his debt because he asked for patience. And even with all the patience in the world and many lifetimes, he would have not been able to, to, pay, uh, to pay this debt. But he does at least get, have one thing right. He knows he only has one hope. And so he places himself at the mercy of the king and he asks for compassion and pity. Okay? And so then what do we see the king in the parable do. Uh, he does more than we could have possibly imagined. 
His compassion exceeds any earthly expectation. He doesn't, he's asked for patience, but he doesn't just give more time to pay the debt. He just absolves the servant of the debt. He says, don't worry about it. Let's just clear the books. And I was thinking about this a little bit more this week, and I thought, wow, you know, what a relief it is if you've ever been in some sort of debt and it's, you know, it's a fairly, let's say it's a $10,000 debt and you just, you're completely, it's over your head and I, how am I ever going to get out of this? You know, I can only make the minimum payments. What am I going to do? And, and the relief it is, at least somewhat, when you get that letter in the mail from the collection agency that says, look, it's been enough time. If you'll just pay us $5,000 of the $10,000, we'll call it even. You know, and that at least is somewhat of a, okay, maybe that makes it more manageable for some people. Maybe that, that is, uh, that's a little bit better. This is a letter in the mail from your creditor that says, we know you owe us $30,000, but we've just decided to forget about it. How many of us have ever received such a letter? No one. Okay, no one will ever receive such a letter, I don't believe. So that's why I say this exceeds human expectations. What he asked for, he got so much more. And so you think of that relief of this servant. I mean, he goes from a completely helpless position. He goes from a position where his family is about to be sold into slavery. He is to be imprisoned for the rest of his life and somehow try to pay back a debt. Something I've never quite figured out how that works, but that's the way that they did it. And he goes from that to being totally free. Uh, what, what a feeling. What, what a relief that would be. Right? So again, this parable is meant to be an illustration of how we should forgive. So let's change our focus from the story to our focus, of, uh, focus on the Christian. Um, we have found just at this point our basis, if we understand the illustration, we've found what the basis for Christian forgiveness is. Uh, in the king, of course, we see God the Father, and in ourselves, or in the servant, we are meant to see ourselves. And we all stand before God with a debt to pay. You know, we stand in his court and we are guilty before him. Are we guilty? Because we have rebelled against his law. We have sinned against him. Um, we have not done the things that we ought, and the Bible clearly teaches that the wages, the payment of sin is death. Um, God is a just a God, a holy God, a righteous God, and any sin against Him puts the sinner in His debt. You stand in His courtroom guilty, and it is an outstanding and impossible debt to pay just like this servant. Okay? We are, one way of putting it is to say that we are morally bankrupt because of our sin. Now, every, every law that we break means that we are a debtor to God. And we are a debtor to God infinitely because He is infinite and His justice is, is infinite. So this, in the Christian's case, is a debt of infinite proportion. Um, this sort of blows away the whole idea of a works-based salvation, of a salvation based on merit. You know, if I can accumulate good works and therefore be made right with God, uh, again, this just kind of shatters that. You know, if we consider ourselves in an infinite debt the first time that we sin, then even if I did so many good works for so many years, if I sinned, I'm back in that same position again. 
and, and I only have uh, a hope, or I only have one hope. You know, so just as this servant could never pay this debt, so we could not ever possibly earn heaven because of good works. And so we have one hope, and that is to throw ourselves at the mercy of the king and hope in his compassion and that he would absolve our debt. And that is, of course, exactly what he has done. For believers, God did give of himself, send his son to come and walk the earth, to live a perfect life, and then to give his life as a ransom. Uh, to give his life to satisfy justice, to satisfy the wrath of God. Uh, and, and so because of that, we have this forgiveness. Our guilt is removed. Our slate is, white, is wiped clean. Uh, the hymn writer puts it this way. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. Amen. In the in Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan is you know writes this story, and this is pictured in Christian as this huge boulder. I remember the children's version and this massive boulder, and looking at it, thinking, how can the guy walk? And what happens to the boulder? What happens to the huge burden that he can't get off? It is immediately removed when when he encounters Christ, when he encounters the cross. The Apostle Paul puts it this way, which very much related to the hymn writer in Colossians 2, 13 through 14. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So like the servant, we have one hope. We place ourselves at the mercy of the king and the king has provided this Salvation, this way to absolve our debt. But I think if we stop there, we would be doing an injustice. Because for the Christian, it is much more than that. We have not just been absolved of our debt. God has wiped away our debt, but he has also given us the righteousness of Christ. He hasn't just set us back on equal ground uh, and made it a level playing field. No, he's given us riches. And the, the song that we sang stated that you know, through the living word, we have the riches of the kingdom. Uh, and so basically, at this point, we've gone from being poverty stricken debtors that don't have any hope of repaying this debt to millionaires, to co-heirs of the kingdom. We have been raised in Christ. Second Corinthians 517, which is a very familiar verse. He made him who knew no sin, to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. I didn't just get my sin taken away, but I got, I obtained Christ's righteousness. James 2.5 says, Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? Ephesians 2.4-7, which directly follows Verses that tell us how bad we were, you know, and that we were once children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And then it says one of my favorite two words in the Bible, but God, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved 
and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So, you know, this is the basis of Christian forgiveness. We have been forgiven and we've been forgiven of an infinite debt. And so therefore we should be forgiving people. We should be seeking to forgive others as we have been forgiven. And that is clear in the scripture. The Lord's prayer teaches us to pray, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us. Lord Jesus presumes that we will be forgiving people. And now, as such, as we look, and we are not going to spend a whole lot of time in the second part of this parable. We're going to spend no time what I'm going to say right now. But uh, we look at the second part of this parable and this servant's response when he goes out. And I hope that we are all appalled. You know, we all look at this and as we read this story and then we see the similarities, the literary similarities of the exact same request that's being made of the servant and his fundamentally different response. And we are, how could he do such a thing? You know, he's been forgiven so much. It's so obvious. How could he do this? And I would suggest that it is more difficult for us to recognize that kind of inability to forgive in our own lives than it is for us on this page. You know, on this page, it stands out and it's glaring. But as we go along in the Christian life and we get further and further and things happen to us, then it's difficult. And we really, really need to meditate on this forgiveness that we have had and have in God so that we don't forget about this because every time we don't forgive someone else it's exactly as unjust and appalling as what this man did you know now if you have a husband or wife that is unfaithful to you that that's that that hurts if you have a friend who's unkind to you or you know hurts you uh, in some way publicly humiliates you uh, kids, if you have a bully that that is unkind to you or just someone that's just constantly mean, that hurts. Parents, if you have children that are rebellious and disrespectful to you in private, in public, that hurts. So nobody's saying that when someone sins against you, it does not hurt. But compare the offense. When we compare the offenses, when, when something happens to us, it's always the worst thing in the world right then and there. And I, and I, I just oh, I can't I can't get over this. But when we look to our offense uh, of, against God and what that was, this is a drop in the bucket. You know, this is what you've done to me or what I've done to you is nothing compared to what all of us are guilty of doing in the eyes of God. Uh, and so, as again, as we meditate on that level of forgiveness that God has shown towards us, the infinite price that he paid, we should be drawn to forgive ourselves. Okay. So the basis of Christian forgiveness is that. Now, let's look at the substance of Christian forgiveness. What does this forgiveness look like? Now, in what situations ought we to forgive are we to forgive in every situation, regardless of the uh, other person, whether they're repentant or not? You know, how many times should we forgive? All of these are questions that we can seek to answer, I think, as we look at this second point. Uh, as in forgiveness, as in so many other things, or you could say all other things, our pattern that we are to follow is God himself, Christ. Uh, 
particularly the Son of God, both what he said and what he did are meant to instruct us. So let's look at the preceding context before the parable. And I think in doing that, and this is where we'll really go all the way back to 15, at least for one point, um, although we won't read it, uh, we'll, we'll see some key characteristics in Christian forgiveness. Okay? And the first characteristic, uh, which just actually we can just glean because we understand mankind, <laughs> is that forgiveness is often necessary. Um, it's often necessary. In fact, you could say it's always necessary. Uh, and by that, I just mean that even within the body of Christ, we're going to have conflict. You know, because why? Well, because we are all, many of us are saved, but we are saved and being saved. We're, sancti- we're being sanctified. We're not there yet. Nobody's perfect. Nobody is sinless. And we all have that sinful nature that's still a part of us. And as such, we will do things that are wrong. We will act in ways that are selfish. We, we are capable of sin. Uh, and so hopefully that's you know, getting less and less, but it's still going to be there. And so, in other words, there are, there's often going to be conflict. And so it is often necessary for us to forgive. People could hurt you. They could do so emotionally. They could do so physically. Uh, I might be under the perception that somebody has done wrong to me. You know, they may not have actually done it, but I believe that they did wrong uh, to me. And then, of course, I could have been the one doing harm to others. So that's the first point is we don't want to think that this forgiveness is something that will be that will be needed infrequently. No, I think it will be needed frequently because as we just go about our daily lives, we're constantly dealing with situations within and without the body of Christ that require forgiveness. So it's often necessary. The second point would be we need to be always ready to forgive. And this is where we go back to verse 15. And let's at least read that. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. And it goes on. And again, that passage of Scripture is dealing with church discipline. But I believe that we can identify a few points about Christian forgiveness by looking at those particular verses. And so we need to be always ready to forgive and we should seek the forgiveness. Uh, we should seek the forgiveness of others. We should confront sin. We should be ready to forgive ourselves. We should do so first expediently or quickly. Okay? Um, now, by quickly, we have to be careful. I don't mean as soon as I perceive that somebody sins against me, I go running over to them and pounding on their door to confront them of the sin. Um, <clears throat> I, don't, I don't mean that at all. Uh, but Jesus does teach, and, and, and Paul, we have, have a couple references here, that teaches this idea of going quickly, don't, not delaying in seeking forgiveness or uh, you know, those things. So Matthew 5, 23 through 24, for instance, says, So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and therefore remember, or in there, remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come offer your gift. Paul says in Ephesians 4.26, be angry and do not sin. Let, do not let the sun go down on your anger. It's this idea of, and there are other places, it's this idea of quickly dealing with this. Now, why, why would I want to quickly deal with situations that require forgiveness? 
And I, I think the reason that we need to be expedient is because if we aren't, then we have a uh, greater likelihood that we are going to foster bitterness. Now, if, if you cannot go to your brother or sister who you think have wronged you and, and, uh, and, or you have wronged and ask for forgiveness or confront sin, and you can do that without fostering bitterness in your heart, then okay. But many of us, the longer we wait, the more it festers. I know it does with myself. You know, and the more I try to think I'm getting over it, but I'm not really getting over it. It's actually getting worse. And it's getting worse because I won't go to, uh, to the person. And so that goes both ways. So always ready. We need to do these things expediently. This verse also makes it very clear that as we go to someone, we need to be doing it privately. Um, the first, if you go, go to your brother, tell him his fault between you and him. Okay. Um, and so it's privately, and that implies a graciousness, a humility. That implies this, you know, not wanting to broadcast it to the world, not wanting to humiliate the person. That's not the goal. The goal of this going to a person is what? It's reconciliation. The goal of me doing any of this would be to reconcile the relationship. So, as we try to expediently go... <laughs> in a situation that requires forgiveness, make sure you're ready to do your part. And make sure if you're going to go and confront sin that you're ready based on the proper response to forgive because that's the requirement. And that should be the goal if my goal of confronting uh, sin is anything other than forgiveness and reconciliation, then we have a problem. We don't have, uh, we don't have the, the right motives. Okay? And so I think that immediately eliminates particular methods of confrontation. You know, speaking to them in a judgmental or condemning fashion, publicly uh, confronting sin, waiting till bitterness comes up. We've already mentioned, mentioned that. So we need to be always ready to forgive, to do so expediently, privately, and with the goal of reconciling the relationship in mind. Okay? Then the third point about Christian forgiveness, the substance, is that it is a forgiveness that does not keep count. This points us back to the beginning of our text, verse 21, uh, where Peter asked Jesus, how many times should I be ready to forgive? Seven times? Um, Now, where does this number seven come from? Because as we look, if, if you look, the rabbis of the day actually taught that you should forgive someone three times. Uh, and then if they sinned against you the fourth time, then you could retaliate or you could at least not forgive them. Now, apparently, this does come from a reference in the book of Amos where the prophet spoke of God forgiving three times, but then on the fourth withholding that forgiveness. There are a couple of references in Job. I find them somewhat vague. I think the point is the rabbis did teach this at that time. They taught that a sufficient amount of forgiveness was three times. Okay, so we know a little bit about Peter. And so here Peter comes to Jesus and he says, should I forgive him even seven times? You know, he's actually feeling like this is pretty extravagant. You know, Peter is being pretty generous. He's expecting a pat on the back and well done. You know, you, you've done what much more than is really expected of you. So, you know, well, that's OK. We'll double that. We'll add one. There's no spiritual meaning here. I don't believe I think it is simply Peter is just trying to 
okay, let's just take and do more than what was required. And that's admirable that he wanted to do more than what he thought was required. But Jesus does not give him a commendation. He doesn't pat him on the back and say, way to go. Yeah. Uh, Instead, he corrects his thinking and he says, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. Now, here again, 70 times seven, I don't believe to have any super special meaning. I've found some that are somewhat plausible and others that are not plausible at all. I personally think that when we study the parables, if we try to read into absolutely every little point, we just get ourselves into trouble. Um, So I don't think 70 times 7 has any super meaning. It also does not mean that you should keep track 490 times for you kids that are really good at math. Um, It simply means what our point said is that true forgiveness is a forgiveness that does not keep count. I should not be adding up. I should not have a little ticker here. And when you do wrong to me, okay, mark that one. Now you've asked me for forgiveness. Yes, I forgive you. Two weeks from now, you do something else. Okay, now you're at two. You know, well, that's not true forgiveness. We don't keep adding up. We just are people of forgiveness. We don't, we don't try to keep track of the faults and the number of times that the other person has repented. Christians are to be people of mercy habitually forgiving whenever the situation arises, not marking a scorecard, being ready to forgive as many times as necessary. And that flows, I think, right into the next characteristic, which is that it is a forgetting forgiveness. God's forgiveness of a sinner is a forgiveness that no longer holds that sinner accountable for that sin. It is as if he has forgotten the sin. Now, God is omniscient. He knows all things, past, present, and future. He cannot forget the sin, humanly speaking. Um, But he can and does place that sin on Christ and does not look on it again. And so when he looks at the believer, he's looking at the believer in the righteousness of Christ and he's not looking at that sin. And so it is as if he has forgotten that sin. Because we're now seen in Christ's righteousness. Now, God does descend to our level in many times in Scripture and talks about forgetting sin. Isaiah 1.18, the idea of being in Christ's righteousness. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. So we are seen in Christ's righteousness. Isaiah 43:25, I I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and I will not remember your sins. Micah 7:19, he will again have compassion on us, he will tread our iniquities underfoot and he will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Okay? And so as Christians, this is the type of forgiveness that we ought to have. We're not only to be keeping not keeping track but we shouldn't be holding a grudge against those uh, against that person either. True forgiveness does not does not continue to hold that sin against the person. You know, and so I said these two really flow together because if you're keeping track, and if you now sin, okay, now you're at three, and I'm marking this down. Well, then I. I haven't forgotten the sin. It's still being held against that person. And I'm trying to keep track as if there's some total number of times that I'm supposed to forgive. And true forgiveness is simply not like that. Um, You know, it does not continue 
to hold the sin against the individual. Now, I, I don't, this does not imply, I don't think, that we can truly forget either. Um, the phrase forgive and forget is a very common phrase, and I think a lot of people take it to mean that, that forgiving equals forgetting. Well, again, we are humans. You've been wronged by another individual. They've done you harm. If we put that in the context of this story, that's you know, as if there is a, a debt that they have to you. Okay, now, but you canceled that debt by forgiving them. Uh, and so you do know that they owe you, and it costs you something to not make them pay for it because what they did hurt. Okay, it's difficult to forget, but the idea of forgetting is that we don't bring it up again. We don't let it fester. We don't continue to hold it against that person. It is very easy for us to look at the gospel and to describe things with the word free. And truly, to us, it is free. Grace and mercy are free. It didn't cost us anything. But it cost somebody something. Forgiveness is never free. The forgiveness that we have in Christ was extremely costly to God. He gave of Himself to provide that forgiveness. And so we are simply to imitate what God has already done. Uh, And that is forgive even though it cost us something, but then not to hold that against that person, not to continue to, to hold a grudge. Probably one of the best references to illustrate the idea of the way God forgives is Psalm 103, 10 through 12. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. The last characteristic of uh, Christian forgiveness is I believe it is a forgiveness based on repentance. Uh, true, True forgiveness is the responsibility, it's the duty of every Christian when true repentance has taken place. Now, so when the other individual is confronted with their sin, and we touched on this earlier, when they're confronted with their sin and they respond in the right way and they repent of that sin, then it's my responsibility to forgive them. I'm duty-bound to do that. Okay? Um, but there is, there is a qualification here. Okay? Uh, J.C. Ryle uh, <clears throat> says it like this. This is a, a quote. The rule here laid down must, of course, be interpreted with sober-minded qualification. Our Lord does not mean that offenses against the law of the land and the good order of society are to be passed over in silence. He does not mean that we're just to allow people to commit thefts and assaults with impunity. All that he means is that we are to exercise a general spirit of mercy and forgiveness towards our brethren. We are to bear much and to put up with much rather than quarrel. We are to look over much and submit to much rather than have any strife. We are to lay aside everything like malice, strife, revenge, and retaliation. Such feelings are only fit for heathen. They are utterly unworthy of a disciple of Christ. So, a true Christian forgiveness is based on repentance. Now, here again, I believe that we have to be careful. This is as we would want to be careful. We don't want to be fruit pickers. Uh, we don't want to be, you know, called to examine things. 
Primarily, we're called to examine ourselves. We don't need to necessarily be examining the fruit of others and making decisions there. I think we have to be careful with repentance. So, And I add that qualification just because, you know, we should not be repentance measurers. You know, so somebody repents and I, okay, well, let's see. I got to wait and see if that was real, true repentance. So I'm going to withhold my forgiveness for a little bit of time until I see that. I don't think that that's the right way to be. Um, I, I, I think what this means, and I believe, I believe this is biblical, is that you are not, you know, you are at liberty to forgive people who have not repented. You know, and I would think that if we are merciful, and have a spirit of forgiveness, and we understand what Christ did to us, we understand the, the commandments of loving your enemies and praying for those uh, who persecute you, that we might very well take that liberty and forgive people even if they haven't repented. Um, but rarely in the Bible is the concept of forgiveness actually seen without repentance. And so it is always this idea that a person would acknowledge their Guilt and that they would attempt to turn from their sin. Okay, and so again, you're at liberty to do that, but true Christian forgiveness is is a forgiveness after repentance. I think it's also important to contemplate this. If we're on the sinning side of this conflict. Um, I can't use this as an argument to say, "Well, now I've repented, you have to forgive me." Um, I have a feeling that's a common argument with children. Um, well, I said I was sorry. You have to forgive me. Okay. I forgive you. But you said you were sorry, and then five minutes later, you did the exact same thing again. And so we have to be careful not to do that ourselves. I can't presume upon somebody else's repentance, or I'm, uh, on, upon somebody else's forgiveness, excuse me. Repentance is a change of mind, a change of heart, a turning and going the other direction. Perfectly, no. But if I'm doing the same thing wrong against this person over and over and over again, then at that point, there is cause to question repentance and whether that has actually occurred. And so, you know, we have to understand that that, that I, I am responsible to admit my guilt and I'm responsible to repent, which implies a turning. No. And so we can't presume upon that. Romans 2.4 talks about presuming upon the forgiveness of, Christ, of God. It says, or do you presume upon the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Now, there's a purpose in his patience. So the basis of, you know, we, we, in, our, in our study here, we, we see that the basis of Christian forgiveness is that as Christians, we've been given so much. We've been forgiven so much. We had this infinite debt before God that we had no hope to repay. And God, of his own will, according to his own purposes, absolved this debt. And he did so not based on anything that we had done, but he did so based on the works of another. From our perspective, this was a forgiveness that was completely undeserved and it was completely free. But... We understand that from God's perspective, it was a forgiveness that was incredibly costly. Yet he bore the cost and he doesn't count our sins against us. And he sees us constantly clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And he treats us, he adopts us into his family. And now we're sons and daughters of the king, co-heirs 
uh, and experiencing the riches of his grace. You know, and it's, so it's that blessing, it's that forgiveness from God that's the basis of our forgiving others. We've been forgiven so much, we should also forgive. Uh, the, we ought to at all times be known as people of grace, of mercy, of forgiveness, those who are seeking peace with others, those who are seeking reconciliation when conflicts arise. I hope as we go along, may we never be like this servant who apparently has completely forgotten immediately what had just been done to him. You know, <clears throat> now, we may, we may question the possibility of forgetting this immediately, but we can't question the possibility of us forgetting this five years down the road when something really, really bad happens to me and I run into this, you know, a situation where I have to forgive and I was incredibly hurt. And so what this reminds us of is we need to continue to meditate on the gospel the gospel is not something just for getting saved. The gospel is not something for just coming into the kingdom. The gospel is something that you should be preaching to yourself every single day. Meditating on the mercy and the forgiveness that you found in Christ and then using that. That has an impact on my life and I look to forgive others. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, you thank You for this time we could spend in Your Word. We thank You that though we were completely undeserving, we were in Your debt, worthy only of Your judgment, of Your wrath, yet You sought to show us grace and mercy. You sought to show us love in, in the person and work of Jesus Christ, our Savior. That He came and lived a perfect life and died a death that atoned for sin and that You then raised Him to life uh, and in so doing, raised all those who would ever believe in Him to life. Canceling the debt, nailing it to the cross, uh, adopting us into Your family and giving us the riches of the kingdom. I pray that You would help us to meditate on this. And as in our daily lives, we run into situations where we are doing wrong or others have wronged us, that we would constantly be people of mercy and forgiveness, seeking reconciliation in relationships so that the Gospel of Christ might continue to go forth and that we would have additional opportunities to share that Gospel with uh, those that, that don't know You. For those here that may not know You, that may not have come under this forgiveness, I pray that they would look at the mercy and grace that You show, at how it exceeds earthly expectations, and how they can not only be absolved of their guilt before You, but they can become sons and daughters of the King. And I pray that they would cast, that they would trust in Christ, that they would repent and have faith in Him, and that they would be saved. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.